Hello and welcome to another wonderful Friday on Speaking Foreign. I'm Dan Van And here's your host, Andrew Gomison. Hello, Dan. Uh, I'm glad to be with you. And I um, am a little bit, I'm excited and also a little bit trepidatious to introduce the topic for today. Oh, dear. Because it comes out of some sad news that came across social media this past week that Joshua Harris... Who incidentally, I just, um, talked about his I Survived Day, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, um, documentary in which he says that he, um, thinks that he was too hard on people in that book. Um, so, but the latest thing is that he, well, a couple weeks ago he said, my wife and I are getting a divorce. Ouch. Um, and they have, I think, three children. And then the week after that, he said, I have, by all evangelical accounts, fallen away. I am no longer a Christian. And I apologize for anything wrong I may have said to the um, LBGQ community. Um, and so Wait. he has basically walked walked away from his Christian faith. And that got me thinking about uh, eternal security. Now people have varying beliefs on this, but as I've studied the Bible and as I've prayed it through, I really do believe that eternal security is a reality for the true believer. The problem that we face is where do we have our security? Because Jesus has made comments in the Bible about, even if you say, Lord, Lord, um, look at all the things we've done for you, you may end up getting to a point where I say, depart from me because I never knew you. Because it's not about the works we do. The works we do need to come out of a relationship with God. So as I was contemplating these things, I thought about, well, what are some things that people put their security in? And I went to the scriptures and I found four people in the scriptures and the things that they put their security in. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, with you today. But before we dig into the meat of our discussion, Dan, why don't you give us the um, quote of the day? All righty. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John five twenty four. So this is one this is one of my favorite verses. I know I say that about a lot of verses, but I really like that this is verse true. because it talks about how how simple the process of salvation is. Now walking the Christian journey is not simple, but the simple process of salvation is that if you believe on Jesus and the Father who sent him, you have everlasting life and you are saved from condemnation you are passed from death to life and my understanding of that is that that is an instantaneous process you can't go back to to being condemned because you've already chosen to follow christ so what does that mean for us well i think it means that we need to make sure that christ is really where we have our security because we can easily have it in something else so i want to talk about Four different people and what they had their security in. And the first one is, Saul's security was in doing God's will, man's way. Indeed. Good King Saul. 
This is 1 Samuel 15, 20-23. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thy freedom from being king, or rejected thee from being king. Thank you, Dan. And I want you to notice a couple different things here. First of all, he said, um, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. But then he said, I, I brought back the king of Amalek, but I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Now, if he brought <laughs> back the king of Amalek, he didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, first of all. No. Nope. Second of all, it says, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief things which should have been utterly destroyed. That phrase is a very key phrase because he said, I know these should have been destroyed, but I let the people bring them back to sacrifice. And then he says, the Lord thy God. He doesn't say the Lord my God. He says thy God. And I think that's a key phrase too because he never internalized his relationship with God. In the Old Testament, God chose Saul um, as the first king of Israel, and we can, I mean, there's there's some pretty healthy debate that could be had as to exactly why Saul was God's choice. But the bottom line is, God only spoke to Saul because of his place as king. Saul never internalized it as an important relationship in his life. And so Samuel basically says, God doesn't care about your sacrifices if your heart isn't obedient to him. And then he says, God has rejected you from being king because you have rejected the word of the Lord. So I think um, it's important for us to realize that we need to have our, we that having our security in doing God's will in our own way is the wrong place to have your security. It's a tendency of all of us, though, to want to do God's will our way, but we can only do it through God's help. Dan, do you have any thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I was thinking back towards what you were speaking of about doing good works and whatnot. Um, and this way, uh, this is a good example because Saul is trying to buy God's goodwill, essentially, by sacrifice and bringing back King Agog to be humiliated um, in front of God's temple, presumably as that was a thing that was done between warring, warring kings. So from this point, you can say, well, here's Saul. He's by, he's trying to buy God's goodwill. And Samuel says, you're an idiot. You don't buy God's goodwill with things. You get goodwill from God by doing what he tells you to do. That's a very good point. I, I didn't even necessarily look at it from that perspective. Well, because it's, it's but, something that we do now. Because we tend to forget that 
the good works that we do, you know, where God might say, well, we might say, God, well, we did all this great stuff. We gave to charity. We, we helped the poor and the needy and the sick and we gave ourselves and gave ourselves. And God says, go away. I don't know you. You know, that's, that was, that'd be people being like, so you're trying to buy, you know, salvation with good works and it doesn't work that way. Good works. You do good works because you have been saved. Yes, because you have been saved. Because it's from the you thankfulness have, of your you heart that you do good work. Yes, gratitude leads to uh, good works. And, and, so, he- and heck, just the change in your perspective, uh, you know, of God's forgiveness towards you, just that change is going to have you doing good works and you're not even thinking about it. Oh, absolutely. Let's be honest here. I think, I think that's a key thing that you just brought up, Dan, is – because a lot of times when we talk about things like the fruit of the spirit and we talk about love, joy, peace, patience, etc., we we often think we often think about them and teach them as if we need to uh, individually study each of these things and learn about them, and then we'll do them. And there's no, I mean, I have no problem with studying love and joy and peace; those are good things to study. But like you said, I think we miss the point, which is. If we are saved, if we are in fellowship with God, those things will come out of our lives. It's not a situation where we have to be like, oh, I need to make sure I'm extra loving today. Cause it's a, re- <laughs> it's a result, not a, not an effort. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who think through the spirits are, you know, uh, goalposts to be reached. Well, I'll be honest. Um, self control is, you know, something that I have tend to have troubles with. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people do. And self-control and discipline are things to be practiced, to become habitual. But being saved by God and praying to God grants you, you know, the foothold, the foundation of that self-control in the first place. Oh, absolutely. And again, I'm not saying never seek to practice these things. I'm just saying if you, if your main focus is seeking to practice these things, then you don't just let God work in your life and really see the outgrowth of it naturally, that can lead to a lot of frustration. And you're kind of missing the point in passing God by and not noticing. So <laughs> our second character that we're going to look at is the rich farmer whose security was in his crops. This is Luke twelve sixteen through 21. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The crown of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool! This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And again, that was Luke twelve sixteen to 21. And again, we see a man who his security was in his crops, because he has this these crops that are doing well, and he says, I don't have room to put it all. But instead of thinking of someone else or of um, saying, God, what would you have me to do with my crops? He's like, I'm going to build bigger barns because then I can just retire and say, live happily, do whatever you want. You know, tell himself that he could do whatever he wanted because he has much wealth. 
and God said he was a fool and he took his life that night and he said, your riches will go to somebody else because you didn't use it wisely. And um, so I just think there's a big lesson here for us to not have our security in our wealth. Um, I had a good lesson of that over the last couple of weeks in dealing with the fact that the state uh, or the, the federal government actually says that I don't don't qualify for disability income right now. So I've had a great reduction, at least in the immediate present in my income level. And so I'm working to figure out exactly how I'm going to deal with it and trying to trust that God has a plan worked out. And it just reminds me to not put my security in my finances, but to put it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, you hear all kinds of stories like, we hear know the classic Christmas Carol, how Ebenezer Scrooge. Not only did he was he tight fisted with his money, but he didn't even make himself um, comfortable because he lived in the corner of a dingy mansion and he just liked counting money but never spending it. <laughs> so he really had a very miserable life. And I heard about another story about this family that had five kids and this brother, the oldest brother. He persuaded his his four sisters never to marry. They lived all together in a big mansion. And when the youngest one died, she had worn, a, I think it was a single dress for 25 years that she made herself. And when she died, her fortune exceeded 100 or to, exceeded or totaled $100 million, most of which she never spent because she was – um, more concerned about just keeping it with her than even spending it to make herself comfortable. And, and I think the lesson here is that God will provide. The Bible says that, that um, the blessing of the Lord maketh fat and he adds no sorrow with it. And I don't think that necessarily means financial um, wealth, but I do think that if we're not wise with the finances we have, we really can't expect God to give us more. <laughs> Uh, God's not in the habit of giving you more than what you can uh, handle properly. And so when you prove you can't handle it, he tends to take it away. Uh, th- those are good thoughts. Do you have any additional thoughts on this particular issue? Well, uh, reading this reminds me again of actually uh, a children's book of parables my mom had. And this story was actually one of our favorites as kids, my siblings and I. And part of it was because of the nice alliteration they went into, but uh, – the whole parable in uh, the other Gospels, they fleshed it out a little bit more, and so they used that as the basis for the children's parable. And the farmer grew crops, and they're bigger than his barn. And the picture was this, you know, little like lawnmower shed of a barn. And so he built a bigger, better barn, and it went through that like three times. And his last barn is this huge, grand thing. And then God took his soul, and the birds of the field. The birds of the sky and the beasts of the field had all of his crops. Yeah. There's a plenty of really rich people right now who are absolutely miserable because they're like that farmer just hoarding things up. And the one thing that I have thought about repeatedly is that if I'm not generous now when I have very little money, I will never be generous when I have a lot. Some people say, well, if I was rich, I would give to such and such. (laughs) <laughs> but that's not the way God works. But God no. says, I love a cheerful giver, no matter 
how much you can give or how little you can give. If you give it cheerfully and you give it with a good heart, then it will be honored. So that's well, important to keep in mind. Jesus made uh, made that point very clear to the disciples in the synagogue with the rich man and the little old lady who gave her last coin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he said to them, that old lady is greatly blessed, far in abundance to the man who gave out of his plenty. She gave all she had, and I'm certain she did not want for any of her needs for the rest of her life just because she's that willing and trusting in God. In fact, I don't know. Personally, I don't, I've never heard a story where someone who trusted God and gave everything did not have, in fact, or did not, in fact, have what they needed to live. Well, you know, and a good example of that is George Mueller, who was a, uh, a guy who ran orphanages in, in, uh, England. Yeah. Um, he, I think they, they're, they estimate that they, he had three or four million dollars passed through his fingers, uh, for the, the upkeep of these orphanages. But he didn't hold it with a tight hand. He held it with an open hand and he used it to help others. And as a result, there are so many stories of how God provided everything that they needed. And he actually was known for not making his needs known to the public and still having them met. because, And that's partially because when he was younger, he wanted to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Not, for, not for holy reasons, but because in the environment in which he grew up, they got they were really highly paid professionals. And so they that's were what paid, he wanted. They were paid well and they were highly respected. And that's what he wanted more than to follow God. So when he did start following God, he's like, I'm not going to say anything about my needs. God's going to provide them. And, and he, he certainly did. did. So our third person that we're going to talk about is the Pharisees because for many of them, their security was in the law. Matthew 23, 1 through 5. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, and that observe and do, but do not ye after their works. For they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But for all their works they do, for to be seen of men, they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. So Jesus is really just saying that these Pharisees, they want to be seen to be righteous. But he's saying they're not righteous because they don't get the heart of the issue. Well, that and they like doubled or tripled the size of the laws. Well, think about that. (laughs) There was so many laws in the Old Testament, like 600 some, and they added, you know, two or 300 of their own or more. I think the current set of laws you're supposed to observe, particularly on the Sabbath, due to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, numbers about 1,300. It's it's a crazy astronomical number. I know that. and And they have a rope around Jerusalem of past which you can only take like 1200 steps or something like that. It's, it's, it's dumb. I, I really did. I I had to research this because I, when I was preaching in through the beginning of Acts, it talked about a Sabbath day's walk and it was, it was only like a thousand to 1200 steps. Like you're saying, Dan, it's like, it's like crazy that that's what they could do. And 
because they were obsessed with not working, quote unquote. Well, and I've heard in Israel that they have elevators that they use on Sunday that that are totally automatic, don't have any buttons, because you can ride in an elevator on a, on a Sabbath day, which is actually a Saturday. But, yes, that is in fact you, Sabbath. But you can't press a button because pressing a button would be work. They're so obsessed with you not doing work that after a certain amount of physical movement, it's considered work. It stems from um, the rules in Leviticus and Numbers about meal preparation uh, for the Sabbath. It says, well, prepare all of your stuff so that you only have to cook it on the Sabbath. You know, But the key thing that I think of in this passage, too, is that in the second paragraph, he says, for they bind heavy burdens – and grievous to be born, and they laid them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Yep. There's another passage that says, you put burdens on people's shoulders that you're not even willing to bear. So, you know, they're not even talking about something that they can uh, officially do, but they make it look like they can to the public. Yep. Um to be honest, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day are pretty much textbook hypocrites. And horrible, horrible leaders. I mean, put it this way. Even in um, the military, you know, they they try to strip out all of the uh, religious type themes so that they don't screw up teamwork with religious issues. Mm-hmm. Even in the military, they tell their people, if you are going to lead, do not tell your following soldiers to do something that you yourself would not do. It's one of the rules. Don't do it. If you're going to tell them to do something, it's got to be something that you would have done in their place or are willing to do. If they send somebody out on a mission that might be a, a suicide mission because it needs to be done, well, I mean, they have to be, and that's have to be willing a, to do it that's themselves. That's a general leadership principle in, in our public life too. Like, yeah, nowadays. If you read leadership books, even if they're not necessarily from a, from a Christian perspective, they'll often come down on that issue the because thing is you do not do that. Because you want to be an example to the people that you're leading and you want people to follow you. A leader isn't a leader if no one will follow them. So a leader does not lead from the back. That's not a leader. (laughs) (laughs) So that's three things. Uh, uh, security in doing God's will, man's way, security in our wealth or our crops and security in the law. Those are three bad things in which to have security. So now we come to the thief on the cross um, and his security was in Jesus. Luke 23, 39-43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And indeed, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. All right, and this story has always been one of my favorites because there's no opportunity for him to do any externals to prove that he was saved. He couldn't get up, get off the cross and do good works. Nope. He couldn't go listen to, you know, he couldn't listen to or even read the 
the various sermons that Jesus had done. Nope. Or the discussions that he'd had with his disciples. Couldn't see any of the miracles. He couldn't see any of the miracles. He couldn't do any of that. All he could do was come to Jesus in faith. And some people say that he did it solely out of fear. But I think that's a slightly erroneous statement. Just because if you read in the book of Matthew, it says that both thieves were mocking Jesus. But there was some point in the evening's proceedings when the the uh, the thief that we're talking about in this passage must have turned to him and saw the, the way that he was responding and the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, this isn't just a normal man. No. Because you notice the thief said he didn't do anything wrong. So I don't know if the thief knew Jesus before he was crucified or if he just sensed in his spirit that he was innocent. But that is why he went to heaven because he realized Jesus was innocent, and but it was necessary for Jesus to pay his penalty. That's why well, we'll see him someday. Presumably this thief was a Jewish man who was raised in the Jewish faith, and, so, and as such he would have known uh, to one extent or the other the prophecies of the Messiah. And also presumably he was still free while Jesus was preaching, at least initially, and so probably had heard about Jesus' preaching and the good works he did. And also presumably uh, it was something of a thing to do for thieves to be when they were being hung to mock one another about what they did. And such, and so we find in Matthew that the thieves were mocking Jesus, as they were probably mocking each other as well. But then in Luke, you see that one thief um, says, if you're the Christ, prove it. Prove it. And the other thief, I would assume, had much greater faith. In, um, his crime might have been somewhat different. We don't know. It's never mentioned. But he became offended uh, at the first thief and said, well, dude, we screwed up horribly. This is our just reward. This is the consequence of our actions. We're supposed to be here. Just look at this guy. He's got a he's got a crown of thorns. He's got a mocking message above his head. And all we've ever heard about this guy doing is helping the needy and going around preaching. He doesn't deserve to be here. What are you doing? And turns around to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not save me. Not bring me to heaven. But remember me so that my memory is not lost. Yeah, and it, it's just so amazing the simple simplicity of it because, like, he goes from mocking him to finally realizing, hey, he's not responding. I think part of it too might have been he's not responding to the mockery with mockery. Yeah. Like he's not feeding it back to us. So, as a matter uh, of fact, uh, you know, I I think about it this way. You know, like. I think about it in a lot of, in the context of, I've heard multiple scholars say that when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, it wasn't just a singular phrase, like he said it over and over again, potentially. And so they hear him screaming, and they think he's going to scream for relief, or scream for people to get him off the cross, and instead he's screaming, Father, forgive them. And that must have spoke volumes oh, yeah. to that thief. And, and, and you got to look at this this way too. The thieves were mocking each other and they were mocking Jesus. Um, you know, but Jesus does not mock back. Well, if you're up on a cross and you're going to die in the most horrible, degrading, 
you know, excruciating way that the Romans managed to invent. And you're not pissed off at everybody around you and mocking them and being, you know, total trash. You want to either be A, really, really frightened, or B, you're pretty much a saint and you definitely have to be innocent. <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting how God was answering Jesus' prayer right away. Oh, yeah. Because he forgave the thief. And then he also, I believe, forgave the centurion because the centurion at one point says, surely this was a righteous man. And then after that, later, he says, surely this was the son of God. So that's pretty powerful. Uh, and, and remember, this is the centurion that stabbed Jesus in the side and got sprayed with water <laughs> from his body. He's like, oh, okay, everything just happened and this is not supposed to happen until, you know, we buried the guy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is no way in heck is this a regular mortal man. Yeah, well, they never expected him to be dead that quickly because no. he's the one that chose to die rather than them taking his life. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's well, they were a, just going to break their that. legs so that they wouldn't be hanging there over the Sabbath. Yeah. It, realize, a normal guy on a cross takes upwards of 18 hours to die. That's pretty surreal to think about. You're hanging up there. Most guys aren't like tortured as badly as Jesus are. They're just strapped to a cross and they're basically allowed to dehydrate and die. I haven't um, done a lot of research on well, that. Well, you, you essentially you either dehydrate and die or you suffocate, usually suffocate. But you're strapped in such position that you can relieve the pressure on your diaphragm and breathe if you push every so up. often. If and then, event, yes. Event well for Jesus who's worse because he had nails through his feet. The other guys they just have a little block under their foot and their legs are tied, so it's much easier on their bodies. But eventually you run out of energy, and then you suffocate to death, and very slowly too. This is this is not something. This is not a death you can. This is absolutely not a death you can fake. Mm. And further, it says uh, Jesus' blood turned to water. Well, the basically man blood, means blood it ran. and water separated. Yeah. yeah. Basically, it means that the red blood cells separated from the plasma and it ran clear. The, if I remember right, and I've only really heard this once a long time ago, that happens like 20 hours after you die or something like that. Needless to say, it happens long after you're normally buried at that time. (laughs) Like I said, I haven't really studied all this out and I, I'm not sure I've heard that the thieves were particularly treated differently than Jesus. But the point being that um, Jesus did die for us and he died for the thief yes. just as much as for you and I. And it's kind of surreal to think about the fact that we're going to see that thief one day when we get to heaven. And his only claim to heaven is the same as ours, that Jesus died in his place. And that's the important takeaway that I want you to come to is that if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, your place in heaven is secure because my, and my dad pointed this out to me. The Bible says in, um, second Timothy five seventeen, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You don't read about anything being uncreated. No. So if you've been created in Christ, uh, then you are secure. But you need to make sure that your security is in the right place because it's not in the works you do. It's not in the church you attend. It's solely in trusting Jesus Christ to take your sins and give you his righteousness. Well, yeah, one of my favorite songs is in Christ Alone. Oh, absolutely. The best line, I think, in that whole song 
comes in the chorus. It says, no powers of hell, no schemes of man can ever take me from your hand. Absolutely. And incidentally, the schemes of man includes you <laughs> and me. It does. It includes the person who is saved. Even <laughs> your schemes cannot take you away from God. That is a good point. That is a good point. God is so good to us. The Bible says in the Psalms, he knows our frame, remembers that we are dust. And I'm thankful for that. So that's about all we have to share today, but I hope that you will have a great weekend. And if you have a chance, share this with your family and friends. And as we always say, keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.